All right, well, today we're reaching the conclusion of our current sermon series, Love, Sex, and God. I'm sure some of you are thrilled that this is now the last Sunday uh, of this series. If you've not been able to be here for some of the weeks of the uh, series, I'd encourage you to listen online. If you're a member here, I think it's really important for you uh, to keep up to date on, uh, on what we cover on Sundays. And so if you miss, I'd always encourage you to go and, and listen. Or if you still use CDs, you can request those, and we will provide those to you uh, free of charge. This has probably been the most fluid series that I've ever done, uh, meaning that I usually have a series very specifically planned out how we're going to do it. Uh, what topics we're going to cover and when we're going to cover them before I ever start the series. But this one, I was more discerning where to go as we were uh, in the series. And my thoughts on what topics to cover uh, honestly changed a few times during the series. And because of that, there are a couple of topics that I thought we would cover. And I think one Sunday Sunday I even mentioned that we would cover uh, that we're ending up not covering. And those are the topics of recovering from adultery and what is permissible sexually uh, within a uh, marriage. The more I considered those topics, I just really felt that it would be preferable for me to simply suggest some resources uh, to those of you who would like to do uh, some independent study on one of those topics or both of those topics. And so I want to suggest three resources to you today. Uh, If you are interested, you might want to jot these down so that you can find them later. Uh, But there are three books that I want to Uh, suggest to you for the topic of recovering from adultery. I wanted to let you know about a book uh, that you see there, Torn Asunder, Recovering from an Extramarital Affair by Dave Carter and Duncan Janicki. Uh, It's a book from Moody uh, Publishers. And then for what's permissible in marriage, I wanted to let you know about two books. The first one is Real Questions, Real Answers About Sex by Dr. Lewis and Melissa McBurney. It's a book from Zondervan Publishing. And also for what is permissible uh, in marriage, uh, Real Marriage by Mark and Grace Driscoll. Uh, That book comes from uh, Thomas Nelson uh, Publishers. For the record, I have not uh, personally read all of these books. I've read parts of Real Marriage, uh, but I've done enough research on them and they come highly enough recommended by sources that I trust Uh, that I feel good commending these books uh, to you. So if one or both of those topics are interesting uh, interesting to you, could be helpful to you, uh, check out uh, uh, those books. So what we're going to do today is conclude the series by considering how the church and Christians individually ought to respond to sexual sin in two different contexts. We'll first consider how Christians ought to respond to sexual sin in the culture, meaning sexual sin outside of the church, the sexual sin of unbelievers. And then we'll consider how Christians are to respond to sexual sin within the church, the sexual sin of believers. So let's begin today uh, by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read the whole chapter. You can follow along on the screen behind me. If you need a Bible, you're welcome to them. They're on either side uh, of the sound booth. And in these verses, we are going to find some guidance on responding to sexual sin, both inside the church and outside the church within the larger culture. So follow along now as I read. This is Paul writing to the Christians in Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? 
and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know the little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. First thing for us to note here is that Paul was writing to a church located within a city that was second to none when it came to sexual sin. A city that as bad as we may think things are today, in our current context, it is quite safe to say that we have nothing on first century Corinth. Corinth was a shipping center, a center of commerce, and one of the industries that sprang up within the city was an entertainment industry to serve the travelers that came through Corinth from all over the known world. And one of the common forms of entertainment came in the form of sexual entertainment. There were sexual services available in Corinth to satisfy the varied proclivities of people from all over uh, the world. Corinth has been referred to by some as the Las Vegas uh, of the first century Mediterranean world. Corinth was known for its promiscuity. And at least in one way that I can think of, its sexual sinfulness uh, surpassed even what we see in our own time as the temple to the goddess Aphrodite was located in Corinth. And this temple employed hundreds, some people have said up to a thousand temple prostitutes who engaged in sex with customers as an act in the temple as an act of worship to the false god Aphrodite. And so we need to understand that Paul is writing to people who don't live in a prudish culture. These aren't Victorian era people here. They were familiar with rampant sexual sin. Paul is writing in the context of people who knew what it was like to live in a sex-saturated culture, every bit as sex-saturated as our own culture, and in some uh, ways perhaps even worse. And the specific situation that Paul addresses here is one is that one of the believers at Corinth had been involved in an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife, meaning his stepmother. Uh, his father was likely either deceased or divorced from this woman, and this man is having sex with his stepmother, which was forbidden by Jewish law, and even the sexually permissive pagan society of Corinth forbade this type of sexual relationship. 
So Paul is writing to people living in a sexually permissive culture, but who are called by God within the midst of that culture to, to live lives of sexual integrity. And one of the believers here has been doing something that even the pagan culture around them placed off limits. Within Paul's writing addressing this situation, we find some important lessons for responding to sexual sin in the culture that is outside the church, as well as responding to sexual sin inside the church. And so first, let's consider what Paul says about responding to sexual sin outside the church. How are we to respond to the sexual sin that we see happening in the culture around us, in the larger culture that is outside the church? Verse 12, first sentence. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Verse 13, first sentence. God will judge those outside. Paul writes that Christians are not to judge those outside the church, that God will do that, that it is God's job. So we learn that a coworker who is addicted to pornography and uh, has used company computers to download porn. We have an unbelieving niece or nephew who are cohabiting with a boyfriend or girlfriend. How are we to respond in situations like this? The Apostle Paul says we are not to judge them, that God will handle the judging. What does that mean? It sounds as though Paul agrees with the dominant reaction of our culture today. Every time a Christian dares to express a less than celebratory sentiment about some sexual sin that is prevalent in the culture. And so the question comes to us, is Paul in agreement with the judge not crowd? And the answer is both yes he is and no he isn't. And let me explain that. Paul is absolutely saying that we are not to judge unbelievers for sexual sin. But we can only understand the meaning of what he's saying if we correctly understand what he means by judging here in 1 Corinthians 5. You have to understand what is going on here. Paul is telling the church to render a verdict and to take action, the action of excommunication against this man that was having sex with his stepmother. Now let's understand why he would have done that. He would have done that because the man's sin was ongoing and unrepentant. If the man was no longer committing the sin and had truly repented of the sin, Paul would have never directed them to take this action. Likewise, in the church today, we are not to pass judgment and take action against someone for committing a sin. The church is called to pass judgment and take the action of excommunication in cases of ongoing, unrepentant sin. What the church actually disciplines is willful rebellion. Ongoing, unrepentant sin, not individual acts of sin. But the key point here is that Paul is directing judgment and the action of excommunication against this man. He, he isn't saying, make a lot of statements of disapproval about him. He is directing them to actually pass a judgment that comes with a penalty against the man. Notice that he does not direct the same action to be taken against the woman. 
And so when Paul says, don't judge those outside the church, God will do that. He's essentially saying, you have no jurisdiction to pass an actual judgment and take action against those outside the church. It appears that the woman was not a believer, was not a part of the church. The judgment of people outside the church is totally the jurisdiction of God alone. Now, if what, is, what someone means by judge not is what is meant by most people who share that phrase today as if it is the pinnacle of biblical teaching and spirituality, then that is not what Paul means. Before I say more about that, let's consider a question that Christians often wrestle with regarding people outside the church who are involved in all sorts of sin, including sexual sin. Here's the question. Is it okay to associate with people outside the church who are involved in ongoing sexual sin. Look at verses 9 and 10. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immortal or the uh, immoral. (laughs) They're not immortal. The immorality, uh, okay, anyway. Um, Who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Evidently, Paul had written a previous letter that we don't have that isn't part of the biblical canon where he had been misunderstood to say that they should not associate with sinful people that were part of the larger culture. And so here he writes to clear up that misunderstanding. He says that that's not at all what he meant. And he emphasizes that that would actually be impossible. You'd have to leave the world to do that. Now, there's room here for us to wrestle with the implications of this. You know, Paul could have been saying something uh, like, hey, you shouldn't feel compelled to avoid doing business with, uh, uh, with people who are involved in ongoing sin, or you, you don't need to feel the pressure to separate uh, from them in the marketplace. You know, like you don't have to only buy from people who are listed in the Christian blue book. You know, he might have been saying something like that. But when we place this alongside the practice of Jesus, uh, who was known to be a friend of sinners, the, the answer seems pretty clear here. Paul is saying that we are not to disassociate from unbelievers uh, who are involved in ongoing sin, that it is okay to have unbelieving friends, even those whose lives are uh, involved in ongoing sexual uh, sin. So you have an unbelieving friend who, uh, Paul lists a number of things here, who is greedy, who is a swindler, who is an idolater, who is sexually immoral. There might come a time that you have to uh, draw a line and separate yourself from them because they try to involve you in sin. Wisdom might tell us that such people should not be our closest friends, but Paul says it's okay to associate. It's okay to have unbelieving friends who are involved in these kinds of things. There are hundreds of different circumstances that we have to figure out how to apply this general principle to, but this is the general principle. If someone is involved in ongoing sexual sin as an unbeliever, Paul does not require that we disassociate from the person. You can be friends with sinners. Jesus was. I think the limit that wisdom would dictate to us is that you can be friends with sinners until doing so begins to make you or another believer start to compromise in your own life. And then it becomes time to disassociate. And here's why. Because even though we want to be friends with sinners like Jesus was, 
we're not Jesus. And sometimes we're not strong enough to resist the temptation that is placed in front of us by being close with people involved in certain things. And so sometimes, rather than just staying there and resisting, we need to flee it. So what about Paul's admonition against judging those outside the church? What does it mean? Uh, Many today have interpreted it to exclude any and all statements of disapproval of the sinful choices of people in the larger culture. Many Christians have concluded that, or at least conduct themselves as though they have concluded that. And so, uh, is it true? Does this admonition to not judge preclude all statements of disapproval of the sexual sin in the larger culture? Well, you're going to have to decide this for yourself. But my view is that it does not. We have to remember here that Paul was forbidding something very specific, an actual judgment with corrective action coming behind it. We have no jurisdiction uh, for doing that with unbelievers. But is that the same as Paul outlawing, uh, outlawing all statements of disapproval? I say it is not. Now, wisdom would tell us that we should not be belligerent in statements of disapproval. We should never act shocked that believers act like unbelievers. But, but let's think about a few things. If a strip club is coming into the neighborhood, I'd say it's okay for Christians to voice their disapproval and fight against that. I mean, we might be accused of being judgmental, but I say that's okay. It's, it's okay to act in the good of the community, even if it requires some voicing of disapproval. If a national leader is caught up in some sexual scandal, I think it's okay for Christian people to publicly say this is an unacceptable thing uh, for leaders to be doing. When even unbelievers agree that porn addiction is horribly destructive to those ensnared by it and their families, I think it's okay for Christians to say, no, we can voice our disapproval of such things. When an unbelieving friend or family member asks what you think of the life they're living, I think it's okay for you to tell them what you really think, including that they need Jesus and that grace and forgiveness are available in him. John the Baptist, who Jesus said, there's never been a greater man born of a woman than John, he was executed for confronting the unbelieving Herod about the sin of Herod having sex with his brother's wife. So evidently John the Baptist didn't think all public statements were off limits uh, regarding uh, the, the morality of public figures. So how do we respond to sexual sin outside the church? We are not to judge and take action because we don't have jurisdiction. God alone is the one who judges and executes justice for those outside the church. We are free to be friends with sinners, provided doing so doesn't lead to compromise in our lives or the lives of other believers. And not judging, at least in my view, does not mean we can ever state disapproval of sin within the culture. But we should be careful, thoughtful, never belligerent, never expect unbelievers to live like believers, and always remember this, that every statement of disapproval should acknowledge our own sinfulness and point people to the grace that can be found in Jesus Christ. Now let's see what Paul says about responding to sexual sin inside the church. Verse two, you are proud. 
Shouldn't you have rather been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Evidently, the Corinthian church had taken a very casual attitude toward the man's sin. I, I can just hear them speaking now. Yo, dude, you know, we're all messed up. You sin, I sin, we all sin, dude. No, no, no biggie. And you know, that's about where the church is today. Nobody wants sin to be a big deal. Nobody wants to be identified as the prude, the one who actually thinks it is a big deal. We all want to be laid back. Just chill. We all do it. They were proud, the scriptures tell us, of their casual attitude towards sin. And I'll tell you what, I don't know of anything that's more accurate of a whole lot of Christians, at least way more than it should be than this, that many Christians today pride themselves on never getting the least bit troubled by the sins of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what Paul says about ongoing sexual sin. You should have been filled with grief. Now understand he's not speaking to the sinner here. He's speaking to the church that is relaxed about the sin of the sinner. He says you should have been filled with grief. Sin is a cause for mourning, not pride. It's a cause for mourning, not a casual, flippant attitude. And then Paul goes beyond that. He he goes beyond just saying you should have been filled with grief. He tells them that they must pass judgment on the one who has done this. Verse 3, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. Verse 12, second sentence, are you not to judge those inside? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer in light of everything that Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 5 is yes. And so Paul is very clear. We are not to judge those outside the church, but we absolutely are to judge those inside the church. And here's what this means. The church has jurisdiction to judge the actions of its members. When a person joins any fellowship of believers, they come under the jurisdiction of that body of believers. And we tell everybody who becomes a member here that that's the case. And I think people forget that we've told them that, but that's the case. And here's the truth. That body of believers has the right, but beyond the right, they have the responsibility to render judgments and take action when members are involved in ongoing, unrepentant sin, willful rebellion. Oh, people in 2015 do not like this. Of course, they didn't like it there either. Churches get accused of being unloving and ungracious any time that they actually do this. You know what? I've never known a church that was eager to do this kind of thing. I've never known a pastor who was eager to get involved in church discipline. It is always done with much reluctance, much regret. I mean, the Holy Spirit almost has to uh, kick leaders in the backside to get them to do this kind of thing. And yet, any time that it is done, 
were accused of being unloving and ungracious. But here's the truth. Churches and church leaders have the right, and again, more than that, the responsibility to do this. And here's why. Here's why. Ongoing, unrepentant sin is a big deal. It's a big deal. There are at least three reasons why the church must judge and take action against members who are involved in unrepentant sin. Verse 1 gives us the first one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. Judgment and discipline within the church is necessary to protect the church's witness to the world. Christians are supposed to be different. No, we're not perfect. Yes, we sin. But Christians are not to live in ongoing, unrepentant sin. How much has the witness of the church been harmed by Christians not living consistent with their profession of faith? In the culture that we live in today, not everyone... But I would say that most everyone, most unbelievers have a pretty good idea that there are certain things that should not be part of the life of Christians. They have a pretty good idea that Christians aren't supposed to be lying. They have a pretty good idea that Christians aren't supposed to be cheating. That Christians aren't supposed to be stealing. They have a pretty good idea that Christians aren't supposed to be having premarital sex. They have a pretty good idea that Christians are not supposed to be cheating on their spouses. And when we do these things, here's what we're saying to the world. We may not consciously be saying it, but we are speaking this very clearly to the world. Jesus didn't make any difference in my life. I'm just like I always was. There's been no change in me since I came in contact with Jesus. Just call me old reliable. Always been a scoundrel, still a scoundrel. And that undermines our witness to the world. So ongoing unrepentant sin must be judged by the church to protect the church's witness. Not only must unrepentant sin be judged to protect the church's witness in the world, but it also must be judged to protect the church itself. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you, you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I've noticed that the word yeast tempts me to begin speaking in Old English, and I turn you into ye. Did anybody notice that? Maybe I stopped it before it happened. (laughs) Yeast imperceptibly works its way throughout dough, influencing the whole batch. Likewise, sin has a way of very insidiously working its way through an entire church. If it is left unchecked, its corruptive influence becomes very substantial. It's not just isolated to one little corner. It works its way through the whole thing. And that is why sin that is known simply cannot be tolerated. It is too dangerous and it does too much damage. Christ was sacrificed. 
He gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross because of our sin. How can we treat lightly such a thing when it costs Christ so much to overcome it on our behalf? How can we let sin take root and begin to grow and spread throughout the church in light of the sacrifice of Jesus, our Passover lamb? We simply can't do that. So the church has to be protected from corrupting influences, not from unbelievers, but from believers who have thrown off who they really are to live as who they used to be. So judgment is necessary to protect the witness of the church in the world and to protect the church itself. Judgment's needed for another reason, but before we consider that, let's see what action Paul calls to be taken uh, against those for whom the church has rendered a judgment about their ongoing unrepentant sin. Verse 11. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. And then verse 13, second sentence, expel the wicked man from among you. Taken together, these admonitions of Paul tell us that a believer who is involved in ongoing sin is to be removed from fellowship, removed from the church, put out of the church, and that the excommunication should result in members of the church not even socializing with the person. Don't eat with them. Do not socialize with them. And this sounds harsh. But you have to remember that it is only for cases where the person is unrepentant, willfully rebellious, determined to continue in sin despite loving pleas to turn away from it. So it's done for the protection of the witness of the church to the world. It's done for the protection of the church. It is not unloving and ungracious. In fact, It is very loving and very gracious because here's the third reason that judgment of sin within the church is so necessary. Because the goal of the church's judgment and the goal of excommunication of a member is always the restoration of the sinning believer. The verse that's challenging to understand but makes this point is verse five. Here's what it says. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. At that time, the believers uh, viewed the world outside of the church as Satan's domain. And so here's what they were essentially saying, return him back to the world from which he came. It's really just another way of saying, put him out of the church and treat him as a member of the world. And then it tells us, Paul tells us what the goal of that is. It is so that his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. The judgment and the excommunication are not punitive. They are redemptive. They are intended to wake the person up, to to shake the person, to to come to their senses, to get them to, to realize the importance of turning away from their sin. We understand the role of discipline in the lives of our children as a good thing, as a good thing. 
But when a church exercises discipline in the life of, of a believer, they're often accused of being uncaring and unloving. And it's important for us to think biblically about these matters because these things don't happen very often, but sometimes they do happen. And almost any time they do happen, what ends up going on is that the church almost gets split down the middle between the people who say, yes, this is the right thing to do, and the people who say, oh, this is so unloving and ungracious, I can't believe we're doing this. That can only happen if people do not understand what the scripture says on the matter. And so before we get to that place where this has to happen, let us be thoroughly biblical in our thinking about these matters so that that if it ever does happen, we don't have to be charged with these just horrible charges of being unloving and ungracious. Let me ask you this. Is it the undisciplined child or the disciplined child that has been cared for the best? It's the disciplined child. Is it the undisciplined child or the disciplined child that has been loved the best? It's the disciplined child. And it is an undisciplined sinning Christian that is most uncared for. When a church disciplines a member for unrepentant sin, it is the most loving action that can be taken in that person's life. And the church as a whole needs to understand that. So that the day ever comes that this has to happen, we know this is the most loving thing that we can do. So let's review. We respond to the sexual sin of unbelievers this way. We do not judge them because we have no jurisdiction to do so. We know that only God can judge an unbeliever. We are free to associate uh, with sexually sinful unbelievers. And while we are not to judge, at least in my view, we are not precluded from winsomely, respectfully, carefully voicing disapproval of sin within our culture. Here's how we respond to an unrepentant believer who is involved in sexual sin We don't pride ourselves on being tolerant of them. Instead, we mourn. We have the responsibility to judge such matters. We must protect the witness of the church to the world. We must protect the church itself. And we must exercise discipline for the purpose of seeing the believing sinner restored. And so for all of those reasons, unrepentant believers are to be expelled from the church and we are not to socialize with them. So as you consider how we respond to those outside the church and how we respond to those inside the church, you see that there are differences in how we respond. But I want to wrap this up today by sharing two statements that apply in both situations. Whether inside the church or outside the church, we must never compromise the truth And whether the sinning is inside the church or outside the church, we must always extend grace. Never compromise truth. Always extend grace. Throughout 2014, we prayed to be a church that would be marked by both both truth and grace. 
And I continue to pray that for our church, and I hope that many of you continue to pray that for our church. You see, Jesus never dumbed down the truth. Jesus never compromised the truth. Jesus said very hard things to believers and unbelievers alike. But not only did he never turn down the truth or dumb down the truth, he never turned down the grace. He, 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 he never uh, like lessened the grace that was available to people. He never ran out of grace for anyone. The scripture tells us where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Jesus was the very embodiment of truth and grace. And may it be true of Vineyard Christian Church and each of us individually that we follow Christ's example, that we never compromise truth, but that we always extend grace to people. And here's the truth, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, your involvement in ongoing unrepentant sin of any kind, including sexual sin, if you're doing that, you have a problem with God. God does not view what you're doing as a little mistake or a tiny character flaw. Even though our society has gotten to a point where we can't even hardly grasp that this is true, ongoing unrepentant sexual sin is an affront to God. It's an offense to God. Because what we're doing with every sin is we are dethroning God and we are enthroning ourselves. And so sin, including sexual sin, is a big deal to God. And if you've convinced yourself of anything else, you've fooled yourself. You've believed a lie. You've been deceived from what is true. And the church cannot allow deception of this variety to stand. The church cannot compromise the truth. We have to uphold the truth. We have to tell you what is true, even if you're telling yourself something different. And here's the truth. Though your sin is a very big deal to God, he loves you. He loves you so much that he sent Christ to fix your sin problem to pay the penalty for every sin that you've ever committed or will commit, to set you free from that penalty, but also not just to set you free from the penalty of your sin, but to set you free from the bondage that sin is. We call it grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us it is by grace you've been saved or can be saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Romans 3, 23 and 24 tell us this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. If you are involved in ongoing unrepented sin today, God is confronting you with the truth about your sin. But he never does that. He never does that without also extending his grace to you. And so today, believer or unbeliever, God is confronting you, but he's also extending grace to you. You receive his grace through faith, recognizing Jesus as the Savior, recognizing that you're in need of a Savior, 
turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus. And I hope if you need to, that you'll do that today. Let's stand.